Monsters and Mayhem, welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It's a podcast where a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before in his life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes a second comedian. This one is a Marvel expert. This one was taught to read using Marvel comics. So it's the yin and the yang of the Marvel experience delivered to you here on MVM. Um, Hello and welcome to the Pride of the X-Men episode. My name is Rob Haldon. I'm a comedian. I'm a writer, but I am also the Marvel expert part of this podcast um but if it was just me on its own who would listen to that rubbish the whole (laughs) podcast is driven by one man and his lack of knowing anything it's will preston i have no idea where i'm going but i know i'm going there fast that's the will (laughs) preston way We start with a pod, uh, Simpsons quote today. That's what, uh, quite interesting. We didn't have to wait. I didn't Anyone playing... to say it like that, but halfway <laughs> through I went, oh, this is just max power. I've been alerted that there's another aspect to the Will Preston bingo. Here we which go. Which is you exhaustedly saying, right, okay, I'll add that to the list of things I've got to watch. <laughs> That's another one where people are drinking away it's... at home. Mate, uh, every time someone mentions a TV show or a film that that sounds good, I'm like, I have to write this down, otherwise I'm never watching it. <laughs> It's a compulsion. Um, This is an episode where we're going to dive into the very first ever X-Men cartoon, The Pride of the X-Men, a failed pilot. So coming up on the show, we'll take you behind the scenes to learn all about the original X-Men cartoon and the failed pilot and why it never worked. We'll take you behind the page to learn about Marvel Comics in 1989 and examine how important and influential Kitty Pride is to the team of X-Men and Marvel as a whole, and maybe even pop culture as a whole. We'll explore the heartbreak of Nightcrawler, the powers of Shadowcat, the original Brotherhood of Mutants, and what happens when Magneto decides it's time to destroy the world. It is all to come here on Marvel vs. Marvel. And we'll... I think we are we are still it's almost like a hangover from the Infinity War mega episode. Yeah. Um, we've it, got the, the I mean the downloads just won't stop. The, the the loving praise coming in just keeps tumbling in and everyone's talking about it and we kind of flogged ourselves to uh, to get those three episodes out. Um and this feels like uh we're breezing to the end of our summer season. Yeah. That is uh, August here. You don't want to end a summer season on Infinity War. You're gonna have something nice and happy at the end. You, you've <laughs> got to have well, you've got to have like a cool down. You get your intense down. aerobic exercise and then you've got to have yourself a nice little cool down, these put are, on some lo fi hip hop beats and just These are the mints at the end of a three course meal. You know, the little chocolate mints at the end when you know we go for a posh anniversary meal or whatever you have because <laughs> you know you need something to just sort of when's buffer. the last time you bought after eight mints because <laughs> well, i remember on mat on in bulk you mean no 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 just in the 90s it was like <sighs> every time you were at someone's house or every like christmas or every birthday after eights were there after and now eight, no i never purchased never purchased my own after eights i've had to purchase oh. for me <laughs> um i'm gonna go i'm gonna go on the waitress website and see if they do after eight mints because it would be nice. Good, I mean, it's good, a good use of your time there, Will. Um, we'll also. I'll, write it, I'll put it down on the list. The show, <laughs> Sorry. By the end of the show, we'll be bringing you what we're going to do in the next. Because the next episode. Oh, the next episode I'm really excited about, Will. Mm. In the next episode, the next main show, we're going to be exploring the Avengers in a different way. Avengers from an alternate universe. 
one of the best animated movies Marvel have ever made. You've never seen it. I don't know how many of our listeners will have seen it. That's going to be very exciting. Stick around as we bring you that. But this one, oof, Pride of the X-Men. Were you surprised to discover that there is this kind of failed X-Men pilot out there, Will? I mean, yes, I was surprised. But then I think about the failed 1994 uh, Fantastic Four cartoon and then the TV show of Doctor Strange we watched. And I think... There's probably, like, it feels like I shouldn't be surprised. There's going to be, like, these unearthed secrets that they went, oh, we tried to do that back then, but it didn't work. People not knowing that Howard the Duck was a Marvel project. That's just what, we're not just here for Infinity War and the MCU. We're also here for 1970s Spider-Man TV movie and a failed X-Men pilot. That's what you get on Marvel vs. Marvel. Many podcasts are a shining light in the world of audio entertainment. And we here on Marvel vs. Marvel like to be a bit of that. But also, let's not forget, we bring you the dark and murky, the swamp-like internal workings of the mind of Will Preston, the mind of a muggle, a man whose head is so empty of Marvel comics that there's virtually nothing inside it. Uh, Will Preston and your muggly ways, you're the linchpin of this yin and yang experience, the different perspectives on Marvel. Um, This is a 1989 cartoon that might have reached the UK in like 1990, I think. Um, Had you ever come across, I know know that you watched the X-Men animated series when it Mm. came out, when it was on TV. Oh, absolutely. I loved it back in the day. Was that the, the successful, the show that worked, was that your first introduction to the X-Men? Had you ever come across something like this, or the toys, or the video game? Or had you ever come across any X-Men-related paraphernalia around this this time before the, uh, the the main 90s cartoon series came out? I mean, I can't remember that. I mean, I was about four, about three or four around that time, so I can't really remember. Uh, I mean, Rob... It was 1989, 1990. Uh, I can't see X-Men or Spider-Man for Batman. <laughs> can't Batman. see for Batman. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, Batman was all about the Batman, so no room for anything else. But I, I, think that, I always think that's an odd... <laughs> like, Batman did dominate what was out there. Yeah. Um, but I can't, see, I can't see a kid pushing aside an exciting story of superheroes and go, no, I don't want to. No, it I wasn't only me, want Batman. Wasn't me pushing aside is a case of what was being broadcast to me. There was no room for it, just Batman. But um, <laughs> I only knew about it because of the cartoon. Didn't know it was a comic. I remember uh, an advert for the toys where they had the big, uh, the Blackbird and all the figures would sit inside the Blackbird. And I remember that, seeing that. That is literally my only... Uh, my first exposure to the X-Men. This really flew under the radar for me. Which makes sense because it didn't get picked up. It didn't get turned <laughs> into anything. Um, the toy line actually... The toy, the toy biz line of, of X-Men toys predates the cartoon series. A lot of people might think it started when the, the cartoon came out. The cartoon is 1994. The, the X-Men toy line started in 1991, and it was based really just off the popularity of the comics. Wow. Um, and, and, and then, you know, there was an attempt... Around the time that this pilot was going to get going, they thought, well, we should get some toys going. We've got a great weird relationship with Toy Biz. <laughs> There's a video game coming out and things like that. Um, although, interestingly, none of the toys kind of matched the... This movie, or the, or the, or this movie, this TV show, 
or indeed the 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 the, the video game that was based on it. Mm. Um, but yeah, the first the first uh, kind of rollout has got nothing really to do with the X Men. That's probably not that important. Um, this did fly under the radar, um, and I guess you've not you've never you've never come across it subsequently in your adult life. I had no idea it existed until you messaged me and said, "Oh, by the way, did you know?" That there was a pilot X Men cartoon called Pride of the X Men that mm. had, that was better animated than the nineties cartoon, but the voice acting wasn't as good. And I was like, I didn't say, I didn't say the last bit. That's all you. Okay, that's fair enough. I I seem to remember you saying something like, you know, I, it's, the, the, "It's the Wolverine." Yeah, it's yeah. The Wolverine. Oh yeah, the what? Yeah, that. And, <laughs> and I was like, "What?" I I am really curious. So I did check it out when you told me, and I was just like, "This feels like a Transformers era cartoon." It feels like. Uh, it's Thundercats and Transformers and Hema has the same kind of feel to it. Hundred percent Transformers. Hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. It feels like it has that same animation style. Um, I don't. I think filmation He Man is very, very. It's a very different style to Thundercats and, oh. and um, Transformers, and it because it's so over the top camp and <laughs> knock about fall down comedy kind of yeah. simple comedy stuff. Yeah. Um, but one hundred percent Transformers. Yeah. I remember I bought this. Um, I I don't know if I ever saw it when it was on on TV. I'm not sure that ever happened. Um, that I was aware. I, 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 it may well have been broadcast in the UK, but and being the kind of really avid avid superhero fan that I was, if it did air, I would have got it. But I distinctly remember buying this from Woolworths. Um, <laughs> saving up and getting yeah. it. Um, I just have distinct memories. That thing, that when I was young, this happened to me all the time. There was something I wanted in a shop, and I would visit it every Saturday. Yes. Because I couldn't yes. afford it yet. It was either on a birthday list or a Christmas list, or I might have been saving up for it. And back at the time when I think my pocket money was like 50p a week, Oh um, yeah, it's a long time to. It's a long, and maybe another got another fifty p if I did chores or something. Yeah, it's a long time to save up. You know, you're talking ten weeks to get to ten pounds, <laughs> and videos didn't cost ten pounds back then. But I just have distinct memories. This one particularly, there was another couple of books and a couple of toys. I remember a Ghostbusters toy that I really wanted, yes. and I would visit it like every Saturday in the shop going, one day you will be mine. Did, did, did um, I tell you about the Ghostbusters toy I had as a kid? No. It was called Fearsome Flush, and it was a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I had one where there was a line they did kind of after the, I think after the successful cartoon toy line, yeah. where they had, they had these little helmets they were wearing, Oh, um, see-through helmets. If you squeeze their heads, if you squeeze their legs, the head dropped out of the helmet, and their stomach opened up, and there was like a scared head in the stomach. I thought that was a very cool action. That's um, mad. That's so I had absolute. a scared Ghostbusters toy <laughs> with a head and a face and a stomach. Anyway, I remember visiting Pride of the X Men. <laughs> Every Saturday, stroking it lovingly, and then probably turning to my parents with big doe eyes, going, I'd ever so much like this. <laughs> Mother and father. No movement on that one, sunshine. And when I got it, I, I, I distinctly remember it had a bonus, a bonus content within it. Ooh. It didn't just have Pride of the X-Men, the pilot. It had the X-Men appearing 
in um, the amazing Spider-Man and his amazing friends in yes. one episode of, yes. of that. Very different team and stuff, and I think different actors and things. But it was um, it was just uh, included on there as an extra, um, which I was as a kid I didn't know about, and I was very excited about. Although I was then jarred by the fact that it was different animation style. It was different tonally because mm. Spider-Man as Amazing Friends was very comedy-based, and it was different. Ca- and I and I I because of reading comic books, I was so geared into I didn't know at the time, but shared universes. I yeah. it didn't. It was jarring that this felt like <laughs> a completely different kind of universe and and, and story and everything. Um, but strong, strong memories of that. We're going to take you behind the scenes now as Mr. Hollywood, Will Preston, dives into the dumpsters of uh, of Hollywood <laughs> to uh, dredge up all the dirt and the goss. Um, Will, what can you tell us uh, about Pride of the X-Men, how it got started and made? Well, this is the, I think, the first stuff we've got to say about the most, in- what I find the most interesting thing, and I'll discuss several reasons why I find it interesting. Funding for this pilot came from the budget for, wait for it, Robocop, the animated series. That's right, the animated series of the Paul Verhoeven ultra-violent satire film Robocop. Instead of making a 13th episode of Robocop, Marvel Productions decided to use their funding to have Toei Animation produce the animation for this pilot instead. It's Margaret Leish, mainly. Uh, Yes. um, She had been trying... I mean, we looked at this when we did um, one of our deep dives into the X-Men animated series. Mm. It's such a long history of getting the X-Men onto television. She had been trying really, really hard to sell the X-Men concept to TV networks for years and years and years throughout the 80s. It never happened. Um, and then she, Ma- Margaret Leish was kind of the head of... Um, I think was not no not all Marvel productions, but Marvel Animation. Um and then it, 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 an opportunity arrived yeah. um, in the late 80s where <clears throat> Marvel... <laughs> see, those cartoons at the time, the Marvel Action Hour or whatever it was called, yeah, the Marvel yeah. Action Entertainment Hour, that wasn't um, being made for a TV network. Right. That was being made for syndication. Right. So syndication is a process by which um, you're not on NBC or ABC or or any of those major networks, but you uh, are being broadcast by a a series, a syndicate of small local uh, um, TV channels. Yes, yes. Who they all sign up to, NBC or ABC or whatever they want to sign up to, but in the hours where that isn't broadcast, i.e. the morning and prime time in the evening, they can show whatever they want and and get a lot of money from ad revenue, and so you'd buy block of enter- blocks of entertainment. You'd right. go to Star Trek, who was all in syndication, and go, "Oh, we want to buy Star Trek episodes, please, because that's really popular, and we'll put that on." Or repeats of Friends, repeats of a, of a sitcom, <laughs> and at this time in the eighties, it'd be repeats of a sitcom from the seventies. Yeah, you'd buy a block of Taxi or something like that and put that on. Um, or you could go to Marvel and you could buy a block of cartoons. Um, and so it's a bit easier to get away with something like this rather than, well, hang on, NBC paid for 13 episodes of RoboCop. Why is the 13th episode not here? <laughs> Where has it gone? Um, yeah. I'm just surprised that they, they did an animated series of RoboCop. I just. Do you, yeah, do you not? I guess maybe you are a touch too young to remember 
Robo. Well, I had the action figures. I remember the cartoon. Um, it being marketed to kids. Yeah, um, the I same just... with the same with um, a- after with the Alien franchise after Aliens. Yeah, I remember um, the Aliens um, toys, action figures, and Terminator toys as Terminator- well. Yeah, I don't know what this was. I mean, I mean, they they sold. They made money, but I'm just there going, hey, here's some action figures for that film you're too young to watch. Freddy Krueger was on lunchboxes <laughs> and thermoses. <laughs> Freddy Krueger, they made Freddy Krueger toys. No. He murdered children. Like, no. this, yeah, and, and that's why eventually they all had to become um, kind of much more good guy superhero types, didn't they? We get... Yeah, get that swing. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I found out years ago about that they did a RoboCop animated series, and I looked at you know looked at some videos of some stuff, and they still have Clarence Bodica, the bad guy from RoboCop, in the cartoon. I'm just like, mm-hmm. why would you? If you had a cartoon, you'd have something more fantastical, not this horrible, horrible crime lord who's just a nasty piece of work. <clears throat> Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I suppose they want to be as authentic as possible to a violent satire. Anyway, back to X-Men. Shortly after this pilot was delivered, Marvel started having financial issues. New World Pictures, who purchased the Marvel Entertainment Group, or MEG, from Cadence Industries in 1986, sold MEG in January 1989 to the Andrews Group. These issues forced Marvel to stop work on just about everything but Muppet Babies. There's a mystery behind Muppet Babies, um, yeah. as it's never been like you can't get Muppet Babies anywhere. Well, you mean the it actual cartoon? It doesn't exist anywhere. Yeah, it's never been released on, oh. like, it's, or maybe it was released on video back in the day. But you can't now. Some of the issues are that Muppet Babies used to use footage from movies. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, that would be it. There's, but the footage is um, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, and some and some Marvel stuff. And now Disney own everything. Disney own Muppet Baby, Muppets, and they own all these other things. And but it's still not released. It's very peculiar. Anyway, wow, I'm going to have to um, research this because I I have vivid memories of Muppet Babies. It was just it was a very popular cartoon as, as a kid. Marvel had these these almost complete deals with some of this animation. Like Marvel made the Muppet Babies comic book series. Mm. And I believe they also made the Robocop series as well at the time. It would be years later when Robocop would go to, like, Dark Horse. Yeah. And they'd have, like, some kind of darker stories. Well, I, um, I went through Robocop versus Terminator recently. The, the Frank the Miller. Frank Miller. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mad. Mad. I am also yes. managed to find, find the Dark Horse series of, like, all the Aliens comics as well. Where it's just yeah. random stories. Like, hey, let's just put a Xenomorph in and see what happens. Anyway... The, this pilot, this X-Men pilot, effectively marked the end of the Marvel animated universe created by DePate Freeling Enterprises <coughs> slash Marvel Productions, which began with Fantastic Four in 1978 and continued with Spider-Woman in 1979, Spider-Man 1981, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends 1981, and The Incredible Hulk in 1982. I am not sure. It's nice to call that an animated <laughs> universe, but... Yeah. I'm not sure how much of a... Can I, I think it just kind of means the Depate Freeling kind of like collection Co- of, yeah. of of animated um, of animated uh, cartoons. Of, d- d- I mean, although, d- quite frankly, I think Depate and Freeling had sold the company by the time it went around to do that stuff. But Depate Freeling are 
like hugely, hugely, hugely important. So to Patty Freeling, when they actually ran their their animation company, they're they're the people that animated the lightsabers in the original Star Wars. Oh no way! The lightsaber effects with the Patty Freeling, the uh, Pink Panther movies, yes. the cartoon sequences yes. of the Pink Panther, to Patty Freeling. Gotcha. Um, okay. Okay. And they also did some like Looney Tunes and you know Merry Melodies and that kind of stuff. It would make sense that you get an animation company to do the lightsabers because essentially what they're doing is just was it like rotoscoping it on or whatever? They're just I guess sort of, yeah. Such a simple effect. Anyway, so just, it sounds like they come from yeah. this proud this the, the this Marvel cartoons come from a proud heritage to Pate Freeling, but when you look into it, they just sold a company and then <laughs> the next people that bought it went Marvel. Yeah, exactly. Discussing why Pride of the X-Men failed to gain traction with viewers, Eric and Judy Alulad, uh, showrunner and series writer of the later X-Men animated series, said, Many of the same creative artists like Will Mignon, Larry Houston, uh, Rick Hoberg were central to the making of both Pride of the X-Men and our X-Men animated series. Pride was designed beautifully. The key difference was the executives making decisions. In our show, Fox Kids TV, led by Margaret Loesch and Sydney I- uh Sydney Iwanta said had had final say. They wanted great human stories, confident that related cells would follow. The writing staff shared their vision, no agenda other than creating the most dramatic animated TV we could write. Yeah, I think yeah. what really comes across is your again you as as you often do, you hit the nail on the head, uh, a font terrible as you are, that <laughs> this is made to be Transformers. Yeah. And it's made to kind of sell like Transformers. It's it's, supposed, it's, it's it's a functional cartoon, shall we say? It they're trying to make something for the syndicated market. Yeah. When yeah. Margaret Loesch left Marvel, went to Fox. Uh, we've got that story in one of our previous X Men cartoon episodes. She'd been trying for years from within Marvel to get an X Men cartoon series up and running. Left Marvel goes to Fox Kids and then says, I now run a network. <laughs> so I'm just going to commission X-Men. Right, that's um, it. I'm going to Trojan horse them. <laughs> yeah. But remember that Fo- the Fox network was such, it was a brand new, like a network like Fox had never existed before. It yep. was so small. And then Fox Kids, it could take so many risks with things like Fox Kids and do things differently, uh, as you'll probably be able to attest with all your Simpsons kind of um, knowledge. Well, Part of the reason and these yeah. kind of things were given the opportunity to exist and then thrive was because Fox could take risks and could be a bit more agile and didn't have all the kind of abundance of red tape and oversight mm. that an NBC would have. Yeah, I, I, I read a, a good book on behind the scenes of The Simpsons and they were saying like when... Again, you know, they were just taking risks because they were just throwing anything at the wall to see what would stick yeah. and just go, right, we don't care, just have it, have a go. Which, looking back on it, must have been an exciting time for television. Obviously, not so good because eventually it would spawn Fox News. But, like, it's such an exciting time where you have it's almost a Wild West aspect where you're just like, oh, anything can happen. It must have been, like, Netflix before it <laughs> went rubbish. Yeah, they, they, they threw themselves into the late-night TV uh, talk show game as well, which had never been done before. And they were like... We're gonna get Chevy Chase to do a t- to do a talk show, and it just crashed and burned horribly. 
And yeah, there was, but you know, in, those risks are how we get Batman the animated series, and and we get Spider, and we get in, things like this. In in the wake of the Simpsons, there is just corpses and corpses of the other animated adult cartoons that they wanted to try on the success of the set that that just did not work. Sadly, yeah, yeah. So, speaking about the history of bringing an X-Men animated series to TV, Larry Houston, director and producer of X-Men the Animated Series, said, Yeah, that's correct. I started working at Marvel Productions with Stan Lee back in 81, and I'd been a fan of the X-Men for a long time. And it was myself, X-Men animated series co-creator Will Mignol, and pilot producer Rick Hoberg. We were all three fanboys. And I got it to a point where he said, where we said, uh, had, uh, sorry, where we had executive producer Margaret Loesch behind the project. And she, I'll say, she found some money in the budget to do a pilot called Pride of the X Men. And so we got a chance to. Let, let's tr- just go back to that, right? Yeah. Just imagine when you're interviewing this guy, there was a good flat read, as you should do. Yeah. But here's how he definitely said that. And she. I'll say she found some money in the budget. Yeah. That means... Oh, sorry, there we go. <laughs> Manipulating wink, wink. the numbers. That's what happened there. See, yeah. what if, when I'm reading this on paper, what would help us if he just put quotation marks there? Because they're like, oh, I get it. Mm. I get it. I get the tone now. So, but that's, so he, he really is saying it yeah. was a slightly dodgy move that Margaret made. Yeah. <laughs> and so we got a chance to at least try and show the network. We did our best to throw out the kitchen sink, but we had to make compromises. Unfortunately, the people who were banking prior to the X-Men, uh, Crocodile Dundee was popular at the time. And so one of the executives asked us, hey, <laughs> what about making Wolverine Australian? And we were going, oh, God, no. But we figured, OK, lesson learned. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, because for so long, there were, there were all these kind of conf- confused rumours about why Wolverine was uh, Australian in this in this uh, pilot. Obviously, um, because they have time travel, and they knew Hugh Jackman would play him <laughs> later. So, yeah, that's obviously the reason. I believe he has a similar accent in one of the Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Man's Amazing Friends episodes. Wow! And sometimes, sometimes there's a, a confusion over dialogue um, because I think someone gets called a limey in this. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember now. I don't know because because Pyro, Py, uh, Py, well, Pyro is Australian. Or Dingo, isn't he? Ding, someone dingo. calls someone a Dingo. Dingo, yeah. Does Wolverine call Pyro a Dingo or something? I, I think and then so. It, it's it's something odd like that. Um, and I know that in it it can some some of it occurred from reading the X Men comics where Chris Clement has used British and Canadian slang because Chris Clement was born in Britain and, and raised in, in, in Canada. Um, and he uses it in in ways that don't scan right, and sometimes it's caused people to think that uh, Wolverine must be Australian or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Fantastic. The theme was composed by Robert J. Walsh, who was also responsible for scoring and creating the themes for many 80s cartoons, including Muppet Babies, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Gem, and Defenders of the Earth. I mean, Muppet Babies and Defenders of the Earth are all-time great theme songs. Hey, Transformers is is a classic. It's a, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, come on. We used to say Transformers, robots in disguise. Yeah, I don't know if without that, that yeah, yeah, I don't know. Okay, that's fair. It's that's just fair. not Muppet Babies. Like he sat down and went, 
Yeah, fifties doo wop. Fifties doo. That's what this. That's what this eighties kids cartoon based on the puppet show needs. It needs fifties doo wop. For for Muppet Babies, like for terms of nostalgia and similarity, like the only one that re- that has a similar thing for me. I don't know why it's Fraggle Rock. Muppet Babies, oh, Fraggle yeah. Rock, both feel the same to me in a nice way. I bet way. they were probably kind of scheduled together on on some kind of oh. like TV thing. Yeah. God, what. Well, uh... Fraggle Rock was just mad. I can't remember. I can't remember anything about it. I just remember loads of puppet madness and the theme tune. They lived underground, and there was a dog that the only they were hidden, and the dog knew about them mm. and kept trying to come in and everything. And yeah, it was fun. Fun show. <laughs> so the pilot went on to influence three X Men video games. In 1989, X Men Madness in Murder World, simply known as X Men, was released for DOS, Commodore 64, and Amiga computer systems. It was developed and published by Paragon Software in 1989 and featured the cast of Pride of the X Men. It was a side scroller with puzzles set in Murder World. A limited edition comic book was also included. I, 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 I love you, Mr. Hollywood. I don't think that's, that's accurate. Okay, I'm just. I mean, it has. It, I can't think what connection that has to the Pride of the X Men. It um, featured the cast of Madison Pride of the X Men. Well, it features the X Men. Mm. <laughs> they happen to be uh, like I. I don't know. I I, I played Mur- Madison Murder World as a kid. I never, and I've played the one that is definitely based on Pr- Pride of the X Men. I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Okay, I'm, I'm just. Hey, look, if I. T- if I take something out of the trash in Hollywood, I don't want you sniffing at it. <laughs> That's a great line. Is that is that my catchphrase now, <laughs> with Mr. Hollywood? No, I just I just think it's a funny thing you said. Yeah, I'm quite witty. In 1990, LJN released the Uncanny X-Men for the Nintendo Entertainment System, featuring a near exact lineup of the team from this cartoon, only swapping out Dazzler for Iceman. However, the game received negative reviews. Again, it's just based on the X-Men. <laughs> Like it feels like the person that, that that came up with this didn't know the X Men were a comic book franchise, and only thought they came from a that <laughs> cartoon. So they went, "Oh, they based loads of stuff on it." Okay, um, do you know anything about LGN? Because LGN are associated with a couple of like, to my mind, odd um, Marvel. It's like I know they did a Punisher game, LGN. Ah, that looks familiar. I'm just looking um, at the uh, the logo. But do you, is, and I just I don't I don't quite. I think they were all Nintendo-based games that they did, or adapted arcade games or something. Well, they, it looks like they, they, they got bought out by Acclaim Entertainment, so... Mm. Okay, it's fine. You can say, no, I don't anything about them, it's fine. Well, no, I like looking, because I, 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 <laughs> I was like, I've never heard of that company before. In 1992, uh, now this one you will know. This Ka- is the one. This is the one that everybody knows. Uh, Konami produced an X-Men arcade game based on the Pride of the X-Men pilot. Up to six players choose from six X-Men. Cyclops, Colossus, Wolverine, Store, Nightcrawler, or Dazzler. Their objective is is to stop the villain Magneto from wreaking havoc on human civilization. They must fight through an army of human-sized sentinels and juggernauts. Sorry, no, human-sized sentinels and supervillains such as Pyro, Blob, Wendigo, Nimrod, the White Queen, Juggernaut, and Mystique. Later, Magneto kidnaps Professor X and Kitty Pride, prompting the heroes to go on a rescue mission. The heroes fight their way to Island M and ultimately... No, Asteroid M. Oh, sorry, Asteroid M. (laughs) And ultimately to... uh, Oh, and they actually go to an island. They oh, do, do they? Sorry. Oh, my apologies. They go to, I thought that was a, a misprint. Yeah. They go to Island M and ultimately to Magneto's base on Asteroid M, where the final battle with Magneto takes place. I loved... Like, this was... I've talked in the past on some early episodes about 
what it was like growing up as a someone that ran American superhero comics in the UK in the 80s. There was nothing. There was nothing. <laughs> there was the occasional toy in a shop, right? Yeah. But there was nothing. The Batman stuff came out right at the very, very end. But when I'd see things like this, I, and I remember seeing it, this was like seeing my favorite things in the wild and other people were looking at them and I could get friends to play an X-Men video who would never read a comic. They yeah. never wanted to talk to me about the X-Men, but they play a video game because a video game is a video game. I remember this arcade game and it, this was not just a black, you know, because in general, arc, a lot of the arcade games were just a black box. Yeah, black box, big black and box. And it might have a, a decal on the top. Yeah. Um, and whatever it was playing on the screen is what it was playing on the screen. Yeah. This one was this big, like, almost purple or blue kind yes. of. It was all coloured. It had the X-Men logos and pictures all over it. And it had an interesting and different kind of joystick and button configuration. The thing, it was gorgeous. And I remember... Wherever, if I was on holiday, wherever I was, I would beg my dad to take me to wherever any arcade, and I would look. I was looking for this. I would walk around, and obviously, when I'm there, I'll play whatever else is there. But I was going specifically to whatever arcades were nearby to see if they had this game. They had it at the leisure center, the swimming pool, um, like where I where I grew up in my hometown, and I played and played and played until they got rid of it. Um, and then, will then when I was. <laughs> Uh, 16 years old, I was doing some babysitting for some uh, local kids to get a bit of extra money. And I'm alone in this house. The little kid's gone to sleep. I'm walking and wandering around. I go into like a back kind of living, uh, nice nice house, a living room that I've not got into before. I'm not, not meant to go in there. I open it up. And what do I see in the corner of this living room? This family have got... This X-Men, Pride of the X-Men <laughs> arcade game no. in the corner of the room. No way. Yeah. And I, the first time I was there, because I wanted the job and the money, I was too nervous to plug it in and play it. But then as time went on and I realized these people are out for hours and that kid's asleep, I plugged that in and I played. No. I played. The only thing is I could never save my score because I knew... Someone would perhaps see it, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it must have belonged to like they had an adult. No, they had like a a teenage son who must have been off at university or something, and you know because he wasn't kind of around it. I'm assumed it was his. Uh, but yeah, incredible. Did Did you remember? You don't remember this game at all? Well, actually, I, I have played it. I have played it. We sent you out to play it. Yes. Well, yeah. I, actually, well, I, I played it uh, at the beginning of this year. Um, I went to uh, a comedian's birthday, Ian Lane. Uh, we went to the Quarters East in Hackney, uh, and it just has loads of arcade machines. And they had this one, and they were all gathered around at one point, you know, you know, just get, getting involved. And I, I, I had a look at it. You know, I've, I've played, I've, I've played, I've played through a fair of it. Then I w- went online and had pretty much looked through a walkthrough because I had no way of playing it on my machine, unfortunately. So I just watched the whole thing. Uh, and it was, we pretty much heard like what the bases of the characters that are in it and and the, the bosses and things. Like what? What is your memories and enjoyment level and your thoughts on on playing this game? It's a, it's it's a it's one of my uh, favorite old kinds of games. It's a scrolling beat 'em up. I love those games so much, like Streets of Rage. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember the other ones now. Jeez, that's, Final that's Fight. Final Fight didn't play so much. I think Streets of Rage is the main one I absolutely love. Golden then, Axe. 
Double gold, Dragon. Gold, golden Axe, I remember very well. Double Dragon, yeah. yeah. I, I, I just, I like this kind of game because it's so simple and addictive and it really gets you working because you've got to watch out for everything. Do you remember the Turtles one? Yeah, I remember. That I played was the Turtles so one. Yeah, yeah, was it was Turtles good. in Time or something? It was so good. Yeah, they 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 really knew it. The great thing about those games, one of the great thing is, you can get your friends to play with you. Yes, and it feels like uh, uh, co-op gaming is such a tricky thing nowadays. They because uh, a lot of it is just online and you're working like in a death match together or something. But it's like doing this kind of thing where it's just you're fighting an endless uh, like a. Wave of enemies is just oh, it's just marvelous. It's just and, simple gameplay done well. And back in the this came out in the early nineties. So back in the eighties, early nineties, co-op gaming didn't exist. Like there weren't, you, was no online play. There was well, there was two there was two player. There was some two player, right? Yeah, it, it, it was very get, sparse. Very sparse to be able to get. And you could you couldn't do this in your own house. No, you couldn't get six people together to play to play the NES. Right, <laughs> but if you went to a an arcade, you could get six friends together around one thing to play. That was a real experience. This is before like Mario Kart and Goldeneye, the multiplayers that I remember it that would come about. You know, five six years later when I was in my teens, this this, this these kind of games predated all of that, and they were just so thrilling to be able to have that fun experience. Yeah, it's just it's just tremendous. Uh, I I I I, play, I I as I said, I had a, I went for a walkthrough of it and watched watched a big video of it. And it just it was great. I mean, the intro shows Magneto leading sentries to cause havoc on the streets of New York, and watching this is Kitty Pride, and then Charles Xavier tells the X Men to save the city. You know, it's very typical early nineties beat 'em up. You get the anime. The thing is, the anime yes, it's... its intros look like the pilot, so it's like, yep, we they definitely based it on the pilot. You've got to save the. What is it in? Is it Final Fight? You've got to save the mayor's daughter. You got to hear <laughs> something. And like sometimes that. you are the mayor, Mayor Mike Hagar, who is a wrestler <laughs> slash mayor, <laughs> which we wouldn't get until uh, Jesse the Body was governor. Have we ever had a wrestler mayor? I'm not sure we have. We, we had a wrestler have, governor. Yeah, must have. A, well, well, I can't think. Um, so, like, you fight through the levels. And at the end of one, each level you get bosses, which include obviously Pyro, the Blob, Wendingo, Nimrod, the Prime Sentinel, the Juggernaut, and the White Queen. I always Wendy- found it weird because they had Wendigo. Their, 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 Wendigo. Ah, oh, my bad. But they they um they had like little voice things happen when they popped up, like they'd shout something, like you know, like ah, I'll get you. Uh. But Wendigo was just shouting his name. Over yeah, that's all he can say. He's like Wendigo, and I, I I found it hilarious. That's all he can do because he is a cannibal. So what happens is, <laughs> um, if you indulge in cannibalism in certain areas of uh, the Canadian wilds, mm. you'll be possessed by a an ancient spirit that will transform you into a bestial form, the Wendigo. Um, the, the Wendigo, yeah, it, I've I've this has come up before. I think it ca- they came up in uh, one of the Fallout games. One of the uh, creatures is. Called the Wendigo mm. or something like that. It's just like ooh, you know, because because of local folklore. So yeah, you fight all the way through like like the streets. Then you fight through through a factory and then through uh, Island M with some lizard people and then Asteroid M. And that final fight with Magneto looked really intense. It looked. You have to fight all the bosses all over again. Oh, you, and then you get to, to Magneto. Not only just to fight the bosses all over again, so you have to fight some of them simultaneously. It, and it's almost like they get tagged in when they get knocked out, and it just huh. looks like, oh no, no, that's just mad. Just soaking up your your coins, <laughs> the arcade, just soaking them up. Um, 
And what's amazing about this is that, you know, we're about 10 years away from X-Men kind of starting to get filmed as a movie. You know, 1989. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and then this, this, this video game, 1991. Uh, I have to tell you, the 90s was a long 10 years. Yeah. It feels like a lot happened. <laughs> it's really interesting how the X-Men is such a powerful, um, successful comic book series in the 80s hmm. that it gets a, a toy line with without anything else behind it. And then it gets a TV... I guess if you TV thing didn't quite work, but it gets multiple video games. Mm. It gets a big arcade release. You know, it's proving before the before the kind of the movies did, and before the MCU is even a thought in anyone's minds. It's proving that these characters are really, really viable. That it's not just Spider Man, which had been for decades, right? Yeah, for decades it had been Spider Man toys. Spider-Man cartoon, Spider-Man board games. Oh, the video game is a thing. Spider-Man video games. The X-Men are the 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 the, the only ones after Spider-Man to really break through and to, on on the on just purely on the power of the concept, the characters and and the way they connected with people that this is a viable thing to explore in other mediums and to um have other ways for 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 people to to enjoy it and get into it. So it's all like the little building blocks that would eventually get us to the year 2000 and that X-Men movie. Context is key here on Marvel versus Marvel because these projects don't just exist in a vacuum. Um, not even the vacuum of space that surrounds Asteroid M. Um, no, they exist as part of pop culture, the moving forces of culture that is popular. Um, so we're going to head back to 1989 to kind of dig into what was going on and what what was influencing the world and people consuming media at the time. Um, Will, how old were you in 1989? Any idea I, what you were doing? I was two and not doing much. Not doing much. No, not doing not. much. Not not earning an income. None of that malarkey. Oh, I see. One of them freeloaders just yeah. drops in, sponging off other people. Um, I was about seven. I was at six or seven, um, and so I was reading loads of comic books. Um, I was more. I was more reading UK reprints around this time. I was also reading my dad's. So I was reading the original X-Men stories from the 1960s, um, which my dad uh, had been giving me, had been giving me, had given to me (laughs) in the kind of uh, his old comics from when he was a kid. So I got black and white reprints of of the X-Men when I was that age, as well as around that time, 89, I think I would have been reading the... Uh, or maybe not, but these um, London editions magazines um, in the UK were reprinting Superman and Batman stories in um, kind of the UK format, the big Beano format. Mm. Um, I had standing orders of those I get every week. Um, there was a Spider-Man collection that came out in the UK reprints, but the X-Men didn't get a UK reprints. So it was, it was I relied on finding... X-Men comics at second-hand stores um, or, indeed, uh, going up to the only comic book shop which was like an hour away in in the, 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 the glistening city of Stoke-on-Trent um, <laughs> where I could get some of the most current kind of 80s X-Men stuff. Um, 
but yeah, other than that, and mainly, well, mainly, I was going to school. That's what I was mainly doing. Um, Competitive, eh? 89 is the year in which the Berlin Wall comes down. And I remember this being on television and not having any idea why it was a big deal. Um, it, I, I could just remember it being very strange that... Uh, for those of you who are not in the know, sorry, the Berlin Wall divided Germany into both East and West for nearly 30 years. Yeah. A major symbol of the Cold War, um, as Germany was divided up after the Second World War, the second time they had a go at the world title. Um, <laughs> and as a kid, I couldn't. I just saw loads of people like taking an old wall down and being really happy about it, and I just couldn't get why they were happy about breaking an old wall. Have you ever actually gone to Berlin and seen it? No, no. My, my, uncle, my uncle came back with Pete. I remember him coming back in... 90 or 91 and mm. showing us pieces of the of the of the berlin wall that he that he had taken when he was there yeah. it's mad it's just uh you get the two walls and you get like land mined bit in between or whatever and barbed wire and they got the guard towers and it's really you, you try and cross that you get shot it's and, it, and this happened in a major european city in the 20th century for ages and you're there going bloody hell that that happened that's mad yeah mad. yeah but yeah, and I've seen lots of sort of spy movies uh, based based out of Berlin, which is always fun. Um, yeah. Salman Rushdie's novel *The Satanic Verses* is published and sparks immediate controversy. Um, and Islamic militants put a price on his head. Have you ever read *The Satanic Verses*? No, but I've seen the episode of *Kirby Enthusiasm* where he pops up. Right. When Larry David gets a fatwa put on him and he's talking to <laughs> yeah. Salman Rushdie, how do you handle it? <laughs> it's a fascinating slice of um, of kind of. Fantasy, religious fantasy fiction. Okay. It's um, it's a, it's a, it's not an easy read. It's mm. not you, you, you have to. It's one of these books that doesn't really spell out what is happening as it's happening. Um, right. But it's interesting. Okay. And Nintendo releases the Game Boy in Yay. Japan and in North America. I love um, it. So we didn't get it. Uh, I always wanted a Game Boy. Never got one. Never had one. I got one much later, but like yeah, because you were two. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone else had a Game Boy, and I got one much later, but I was still happy. What a console! Absolutely, I love really Game Boys. wanted one. It's just mm. I never, I never had a handheld uh, kind of unit as a kid. I played, I played Frenzies, and went, I'd love this. And I, oh. and but I also knew if I had a Game Boy, if my parents didn't take it off me, I would never go to sleep. I would, oh. I, I would play it constantly. Nintendo um, DSs, man, they were. I still, I still have. Oh a yes, I had a DS. A DS was yes, a bit of DS. fun. Great, it was yeah. an amazing. I was just, I don't know. I, I think I would enjoy a DS a lot more now because I'm a lot more about simple <laughs> games like on your mobile. <laughs> yeah. But then I was just like, all I want to do is play Vice City. There's nothing else I want to do <laughs> with my life. <laughs> and 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 some yeah. of the games that are a bit like Vice City. Yeah. Um, singles, 1989, Ride on Time by Black Box. Will you give us a burst? <laughs> what, 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 do you want me to yell out the actual song? That's what I'm looking for. It's one of my favourites. It's one of my favourites. Eternal Flame by the Bangles. Back to Life by Soul to Soul. Like a Prayer by Madonna, which I thought was much, much earlier in the 1980s. That's taken me by surprise. And If You Don't Know Me By Now by Simply Red. You know that one. Yeah, well, yeah. Not one of my favourite ones. You want me to sing it, no? No. Yeah, that's revenge. No, no, no. Uh, Simply simply Red have some uh, nice little ditties here and there. He's a very odd man, though, isn't he? Yeah, very Um, odd. It doesn't look like an amazing year (laughs) for songs, really. Um, 
Back to Life was a good one. Um, TV shows. Uh, the Simpsons airs its first episode. Simpsons roasting on an on an open fire. Um, and then it tells me to say, the show will become a cultural phenomenon. I agree. And the longest running primetime scripted show in history. Incorrect. With oh, 750 hello. episodes and counting. Who's, when the... did Simpsons start, Will? 1989. 1989, yeah. Coronation Street has been running since 1960. Every week, non-stop. I don't... 750 I... episodes. Try thousands, Will. Try, like, 10,000. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. The first episode of Seinfeld airs becoming one of the biggest sitcoms of the 90s. It's something I discovered late night on BBC Two... Mm. As a teenager, it would have been the very end. The very, the, I remember. I remember the um, oh, the one where Kramer builds the whole, rebuilds the set of a talk show in his in his apartment. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh, that was a I, good I, one. I have distinct yeah. memories of that one, um, yeah. and that was that was like a, a BBC Two showed the Larry Sanders show and Seinfeld back to back, but like at eleven thirty at night, it was a weird block. But my first exposure to Seinfeld, I think, was a Sky One advert, and it was they were showing the bit where people are eating a Snickers with a knife and fork. Yeah, and I thought that I thought, oh, that looks quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> Baywatch washes onto our screens, revitalizing the career of David Hasselhoff and making Pamela Anderson a household name. Um, I remember Baywatch being it being it being it being it being a really like knowing it was kind of a cheesy thing even as a kid, but it being an, an interesting thing to watch on yeah. on ITV, being quite into it. Yeah, <laughs> it was a it was a cultural phenomenon. That's what I'll say. Oh, it certainly was. And then, of course, it it spawned the far superior Baywatch Nights. Oh, is that where it gets darker or something, or weirder? David Hasselhoff's character, Midge, <laughs> and uh, the cop, who sometimes turns up in Baywatch, they form a private detective agency. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yes! But he only does it at night, because by day, he's a lifeguard. Um, he doesn't sleep. Oh, Never it's sleeps. Great, it's a great series. That's brilliant. Um... Uh, movies, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan uh, lead the rom-com When Harry Met Sally. Um, still regarded as one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. In my mind, it's the it's untouchable. It's the best. It's, it's the great. best written. So it's good. the best performed. It's one of the best ones I've ever seen. It's it's, it's a, a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, and I do like to watch it uh, around New- I like to watch it around New Year's every year if I'm home yeah. on New Year's Eve because it ends on New Year's Eve mm. I'll always watch When Harry Met Sally another good option is at point in autumn where the leaves are really like you know when it's the first really chilly day of autumn yes the leaves have really turned and you're like I need a scarf and a big coat to go out. That's another day when I'll watch When Harry Met Sally because there's a lot of kind of, well, maybe there's just one autumnal scenes in it. Mm. Um, well, there are probably some summer scenes as well, but I don't really remember those. Uh, I just have strong memories of like the the nice kind of, uh, and it's a good like watch, watch in on a cold day movie. Yeah, um, yeah, I get that. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure hits cinemas, launching the career of Keanu Reeves and reminding everyone to be excellent to one another. Um, they're wholesome boys Rob they're really wholesome boys I haven't seen it in a long time but I remember the f- I, 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 I taped it off the telly when I was mm. a kid yep uh, you'd put your old blank VHS into the tape Ooh. machine sometimes you'd have to set the controllers to record when you weren't around and I remember taping um 
both, but I had, I think I eventually had both of them, and and having it for years and watching and rewatching it. I think I might have seen Bogus Adventure, Bogus, Bogus Journey. Journey first. Ah, I think it might, have, I think it okay. might be one of them. I think I saw Bogus first. Um, Timothy Dalton ends his short run as James Bond with License to Kill, the best Bond movie until Goldeneye came out. It's very dark as well. Very. That's gritty. why it's the best. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, Felix gets eaten by a shark, <laughs> and then someone explodes in a pressure pressure container. Oh my god, I forgot Awful. about that. Awful. I was Awful. so as a child, I was there was a lot of rule, not a lot of rules, but my parents strongly, strongly discouraged me from playing with or having any kind of enjoyment around guns. I wasn't allowed yeah. any toy guns. I wasn't allowed water pistols until the very plasticky Super Soaker came out which was just kind of pumping water yeah. at people. Um, but guns were verboten um, as they tried to stifle a boy's natural instinct to destroy and kill. Um, <laughs> as a result of this, I grew up... Ador- and that's why I was allowed to watch wrestling, because there were no guns. Like, <laughs> you people are mad! There's loads of violence in this! Um, but I was obsessed with James Bond. It yeah, was because I wasn't, alla- I wasn't allowed to watch them. I was not allowed to watch a James Bond movie until I was much, much older. And all that did is made me desperately to, desperate to watch a James Bond movie. And I, thought, <laughs> I, I would buy books about them and read all about the movies, thinking this was rebelling. And my parents were like, yeah, we don't care about you reading, you idiots. We don't want you to glamorize guns. Anyway, um, <laughs> the highest grossing movies of 1989, the top five, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Banger. Absolute Batman, banger. Banger. Back to the Future Part 2, banger. Look Who's Talking, banger. Dead Poet Society, overrated. Um, oh, I was waiting for you to do the <laughs> twist at the end. I, I've never seen is, is it. Is it, is it all right? It's, it is. It's, it's, it's kind of fine. Yeah. It's just a bit... There's a takedown of it. I can't give you the takedown without spoiling the movie at all. So I'm probably not gonna. Um, mm. But it's there's a takedown of it. I remember distinctly from an episode of Friends. There's like one character just has a couple of lines about it, and it's really funny and it's dead on. Um, and yeah, there we go. Um, a big, incredible year for movies. Oh, absolutely. Um, and now, 1989 is also a very important year in Marvel. Um, the entire Marvel universe in 1989 in the comic books is gripped by one of the very first. True company-wide crossovers, Inferno. Ooh, that rings a bell. Uh, Cyclops' wife, Madeline Pryor, is corrupted by the dark forces of Limbo, loses her mind, and becomes the insane Goblin Queen. <laughs> Portals are opened to uh, dark dimensions. I don't know why I was laughing. I am the Goblin Queen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty full on. She's kidnapping babies and stuff, man. Oh, man. Um, she brings ha- literal hell to Manhattan. The Avengers, the X-Men, X-Factor, the New Mutants, and the X-Terminators have to battle with demons, goblins, and Mr. Sinister. And one of the of startling revelations is, really, is, is, is kind of unveiled at the end. Um, it's a big one. Uh, Atlantis Attacks also happens in 1989, where the... The various underwater empires uh, underneath the sea all decide we're going to bring back the Elder God set um, <laughs> using wow. the Serpent Crown and the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and name off to fight and do all sorts of stuff. I didn't love that one. We looked at that. Do you remember in our, what we did on our live show? We did 
the worst, the most horrifying what if episode. Oh, what? And it was, was snake, the snake, snake people. God. Yeah, snake yeah. people. I remember this. Yeah, God. That was what if the heroes lost Atlantis attacks. Um, 1989 is also the first year that we get John Byrne's groundbreaking sensational She-Hulk. Um, it begins that year, presenting a funny fourth wall-breaking sex-positive female superhero for the very first time, whilst also using cheesecake glamour model artwork to attract readers. Um, is it feminism? It's hard to say. Um, it's a man's idea of feminism. What if comics returned for the first time in five years? The series had been cancelled in the early 80s, and then it returns in 1989 with my favourite run, some of my favourite comics, because the second volume of What If that starts in 1989 features the darkest stories going. Um, <laughs> almost all of them end with the bad guy winning, superheroes dying, and the world ending. And I can remember every time as a kid getting to the end and going, oh, man, everything's no. awful. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you need those endings to go like... It's expand. Oh. It, it's expands your mind. Yeah. Um, Marvel's mature line, epic, not epic comics, just epic, um, which handled some um, handled a lot of interesting things. They published the very first Hellraiser comics. No um, way. Mature line. It, it 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 You could say Marvel wanted something to compete with Vertigo. Yeah, that makes sense. And Hellraiser was probably the first attempt to do something in the horror realm. <sighs> Whereas Vertigo had been doing. Um, Swamp Thing and then Hellblazer and stuff like that um, Clive Barker is attached as a consultant for all the stories um, and the Hellraiser comics last until 1994 in different iterations and feature stories by Neil Gaiman and artwork by Dave McKean um, so there's some to really look out for they're not just kind of throw away tie-in comic make a quick buck mm. Ronald Perlman as Will alluded to earlier Ronald Perlman buys the Marvel Entertainment Group, MEG, or as Will likes to call it, Meg. Meg! Um, the parent company of Marvel Comics from New World Entertainment for $82.5 million. The following year would begin the big push of expansion of comics as the new business owners necessitated that Marvel publish more, more, more. More comics, more issues, stretch storylines out um, for as long as possible, flood the market it's Marvel versus it's Marvel, Marvel, Marvel for many, many years until guess what? It collapses into bankruptcy. Will, let's go behind the page now. Um, as we are dealing for the first time on screen with Kitty Pride. We've never yes. seen a character before. We've done our Days of Future Past. Um, episodes, which we touched on the we touched on the comic book version of the character. Um, but of course that adaptation from the uh from the animated series and indeed the phoenix saga both those adaptations did not feature any kitty pride we've never seen the character on screen until now i mean she is in x-men last stand let's move on uh, <laughs> is she in last stand no i think you're wrong there you're in days no, of she, is. She, she, she 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 uh warps uh juggernaut into the floor oh okay. phases him to the floor in 1980 legendary x-men writer chris Claremont. And the renowned artist on the series, John Byrne, unveiled Kitty Pride character for the first time. They'd uh, it, this bit is contentious. Now, some reportings of the debut of Kitty Pride 
have this story that there was an editorial mandate that the X-Men comics must feature children going to a school. (laughs) I don't understand that. Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief at Marvel at the time, and he did have some very odd rules and implementations and ideas. Very successful ones, but some very odd ones. And there was some chafing towards the end between Jim Shooter and Clement and Byrne. I don't see that one happening. The other story that I that I because no one told no virtually no one told Chris Kleiman what to do with the X Men. Um, the other story that that is out there is that Clement and Byrne together came up with the idea of turning Xavier's mansion back into a school once more and trying to do something that pays more homage to the original sixties Kirby and 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 Stanley stories that mm. the X-Men is all about students and you'd have the next generation of X-Men in training um a storyline that would eventually go on to become the new mutants which was very successful in the 80s but at the mm. time apparently editor in chief Jim Shooter shot this idea down Jim he Shooter shot he did he said it sounded too much like the legion of substitute X-Men um, <laughs> I love it oh I love it that's good now that, that's kind of a an odd reference, but at the time DC Comics had a successful series called The Legion of Superheroes. Mm. The Legion of Superheroes did indeed have backups who were known as the Legion of Substitute Superheroes. Um, so he's kind of playing around with the words there. Um, but out of this, whatever happened, editorial mandate or original plan shot down, came a solid plan to include a young teenager into the X Men comics for the first time since the sixties. Um, a st- student learning their place in the world. Um, Artist John Byrne named Kitty Pride after a real-life person, Um, Mm. a classmate he had um, at school in Canada, the the Alberta College of Art and Design. Um, There was a Kitty Pride that he met there in the 70s, Um, and Byrne told Pride he liked her name so much he wanted to ask permission to use it when he created a character um, for comic books, and she apparently gave her permission and it was never heard from again. Um, Kitty's original look and design was supposed to evoke a young Sigourney Weaver. Um, oh, yes, yes, I can see that. Can you, from the cartoon? It's the hair, the curly hair. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, okay. She doesn't have. She does not have any curly hair in the comics. Oh, okay. That's my bad then. When does Sigourney Weaver have curly hair? In Alien. Oh, the first Alien mm. film, she has lots of curly hair. Okay. I can't picture that, but okay. Um, I'm not saying you're wrong. I said I can't picture it. Uh, oh, guys, really, guys. I've annoyed the wife now. He's really not happy. Looking at um, a picture of Sigourney Weaver now. Okay, good. Um, I'm going to carry on with the episode. So the original look was supposed to evoke a young Sigourney Weaver. John Byrne recalled the, the uh, a, a young Sigourney Weaver was how the face started to evolve when I started looking at the face. Um, a couple of my pictures started to look that way, and I said, okay, that's fine. She can grow up to be Sigourney Weaver. That's a great image. Um, mm. She first appeared, as I said, 1980, in a story by Clement and Byrne, a highly intelligent 13-year-old girl. Chris Kleiman said several elements of the character's personality would arrive from those of X-Men editor Louise Simonson's daughter, Julie. Um, and uh, Kleiman 
was very close to Louise uh, Simonson and her and her husband, and so spent an awful lot of time with Julie, um, and adapted some of those elements. Um, Clement had Kitty become the team's genius, um, simply because the X Men at the time did not have one. There was no one who was good with electronics or computers or science. Beast has had long since left the team. Ah, okay. I was going to say, what about Beast? Yeah, yeah, different vibe. Mm. Um. A precocious young kid who's smart enough to do things the adults can't is an unsafe territory for a character. Um, It could very easily slip into Wesley Crusher territory, uh, becoming the kind of like annoying Mary (laughs) Sue wish fulfillment character. Yeah. But Clement's writing handled the character in a deft way, expressing weakness and vulnerability as well as strength. Kitty was an incredibly likely relatable everyman character the likes of which hadn't been seen at marvel since since peter parker the early days of spider-man kitty struggled she failed she picked herself back up had the capacity to grow and learn had many failings along the way um and she was also she was really she was just very very likable she would every time she'd come up with a new costume to wear for the x-men it was horrible. It was a terrible costume. And everyone acknowledged it was bad. And she kind of acknowledged it was bad. She couldn't settle on a like a superhero name. And she went through some terrible ones. Originally she was called Sprite. Um yeah. and then and then Ariel. Uh and then later on Shadow Cats. And none of them really quite worked. Um and that's why everyone refers to her as Kitty Pride, except for the X-Men, who all have their own different nicknames for her. Um Kitty Pride became Chris Clement's favorite viewpoint character when he when he would write the stories, the lens through which the readers experienced the X-Men. Um, and it was a smart move to introduce her, whether he knew it or not, because Clement was starting to indulge and burn in increasingly adult themes and complex stories, mm. as we saw in the Dark Phoenix. Kitty <laughs> makes her debut in the middle of the of the long Dark Phoenix saga. And then she goes on to play the lead role in Days of Future Past. And her youthful perspective heightens the, the, the narrative impact of those stories. Kitty is the perfect point-of-view character, drawing new readers into the X-Men's world and adding a, like a humanity to some of the very dark superhero stories. The darkest that had ever been told at this point, which are starting to emerge in the X-Men with Clement and Byrne. When Kitty's arrival comes a new level in Chris Clement's writing. And he said that writing for Kitty pushed him to delve into deeper emotional depths with his characters. And that emotion quickly bled over and led him to, to write that way for all the other X-Men. The Dark Phoenix saga, which is widely regarded as the greatest Marvel story ever written, and it's regarded as that because how it's just dripping with emotion it is. And mm. we have Kitty Pride to thank for that. She became a highly influential character, cited as one of the earliest examples of the geek being the hero, (laughs) saving the day, the geek being the main character, something that would explode later in the 1990s and eventually become geek chic. Kitty Pryde was also a major influence on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a show which in turn transformed female depictions in the action-adventure genre. An early Kitty Pride story features her all alone in the X-Mansion, 
battling a demonic-looking alien creature. And Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, cites this single comic book issue as the genesis for his early ideas about Buffy. Right. She's had a huge impact on pop culture. Kitty Pride became the heart of the X-Men, the relatable everyman character that helped inject layers of emotion into Marvel Comics, the likes of which had never been seen before. It's a small bag you have this week, Will, because uh, this is the show, this is the... A, 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 a project that not many people remember. Yeah. Hidden away, secret X-Men cartoon. Very secret and hidden away, but we managed to get a couple of lessons about it. Harry Scott Moncrief said, This show made me realise that we'll never get a comic-accurate Nightcrawler in other media. Nightcrawler is a suave, swashbuckling Errol Flynn type, but the only personality the West can depict with a German accent is either harmless goofy or sinister evil. There is no middle ground. Thanks for writing in, Harry. Um, I think I've got some thoughts on this later on as we get to this kind of stage of it. I I don't know. I don't... Yeah, they don't have the suave swashbuckling, the Errol Flynn stuff, but... They're juggling an awful lot in this. Yeah. If we'd had multiple depictions, perhaps we would have got it. Multiple episodes, sorry, perhaps we would have got to that. Um, and I think they're, they are, the people that made this are perhaps, I think, unknowingly picking on one element of Nightcrawler that is complex and requires Chris Claremont writing multiple issues for a year to kind of explain. No, I totally um, get that. I totally get we'll, that. We'll, yeah. Uh, Melissa Lauren also wrote in to say, The tie-in video game was the first time I saw X-Men characters, I think. I thought Nightcrawler looked extremely cool and later bought a bunch of Excalibur comics because of it. I like this pilot, but I wouldn't have traded the 90s cartoon for it, despite the fact that my favourite mutant was only featured on the 90s show twice. This one was just a bit cheesy. Wait, some of- did, did she say who that was? No, she didn't. I think it's Nightcrawler. Oh, that I, I'm going to assume yes. Nightcrawler. That makes sense. Well done, Will. Yeah. This one was just cheesy, a bit cheesy, and some of it was just wrong, like Wolverine's accents. Didn't this version of the X-Men show up in, on Spider-Man and his amazing friends? And Logan still had that very non-Canadian accent. So bad. I am, however, glad this one episode was made. It's an interesting curiosity and fun to watch for what it is. Thanks ever so much, Melissa. Um, it wasn't quite this version of the team that showed up in The Amazing Friends, uh, but it was because... Yeah, but it was... A team of X-Men that had similar characters, I think. I don't think Dazzler was in it. Um, But yes, they did show up in The Amazing Friends. I think three or four episodes of that before we got to um, to this pilot. Um, If you want to get in touch with us, you can always drop us a line. Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com. You can send us tweets and DMs and follow us along on Twitter at Marvel versus Marvel. Do I have to say X? I'm not going to bother with that. <laughs> it's Twitter. Um, what, what an episode to mention that, though. I know. I was just thinking if there was a joke there, and my no. brain just sparked out on me. Um, it's a warm day. <laughs> it's a very warm day here, too. Oof. Of course, the very best way to interact with us is on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. We want to take time now to give a big shout-out to the people that make this show possible. That's everybody on, on, on Patreon makes the show possible. But a very special thanks goes out to the top, top spenders, the top, top contributors, the world-class wrecking crew, Peter J., 
Brandon Smigilski, Randall Schmidt, Bastabeer, Sam, Bindi, Supi, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, Zubair Q, and David Fan. The heavy hitters will. We salute you. We're both doing a salute right now. <laughs> I'm doing it now. And there we go. Um, there are 77 bonus episodes available right now on Patreon. Can you believe that, Will? 77 bonus episodes that we've done? We've got too many. You've got too many. You've got to get on there right now. It's worth money. It's worth the money. And this month, we released a mega deep dive bonus show on the Infinity Gauntlet, the original comics that inspired Infinity War and Endgame. It's Thanos versus the Marvel Universe as he collects the Infinity Stones and remakes the world, the universe, in his image. A mega blockbuster of a story that is wildly different, as Will can attest to the movies. Oh, yes. Packed with twists and turns. We don't skimp. It's two hours and 18 minutes long. It's a mega one. Will... Just a brief little reflection on our Infinity Gauntlet bonus show. It was absolutely mad. If you thought Infinity War the film was a big thing, the comic is puts it to shame. It's it's, mad. it's, it's massive. You'll also get access to to sorry, you'll get access to thirty nine full length deep dive bonus episodes, just like Infinity Gauntlet. Plus, you'll get early access to every show main show that we release. Plus, you'll get access to 34 mini-shows. All they're available for you on the various tiers on Patreon. Every month, we give away um, to every subscriber a fun bonus episode called Obscure Marvel, where we dive into the most ridiculous Marvel stories and characters. This month, it was the day when Thor went crazy and evil. <laughs> a crazy tale from the 1960s, where Thor and Loki team up to take over the world. And so Odin defeats them by doing some light carpentry. <laughs> <laughs> what an episode. What an episode. We drop Obscure Marvel every single month. We release a full-length deep dive bonus episode every single month. Early access for every show that comes out on a Friday instead of on a Monday. It's all there. Plus a great way to interact with us, give us your feedback, to ask for episodes, to tell us what you want us to do and dive into... And the knowledge that you're supporting this show, that when you get through listening to over five hours of Infinity War, knowing all the hard work, the days of work that me and Will put into that, you know you're part of the community, you know you're giving back, you know you're making sure we're still going to be here for a year, in a year's time, to actually deliver Endgame to you all and not leave you hanging. Um, shout out to some new members who are doing the right thing, supporting the community. Uh, Damian Lee, Mark Marston, K-Squad 80, welcome to the club. Thanks for doing the right thing, standing up. You've got 39 huge episodes to uh, to binge your way through. And that's all available. Support the community. Get the cool bonus content on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. On the other side of this break, it's the patented deep dive into the very first X-Men cartoon. Oh. 